1: Today we're going to be discussing a topic that we've touched on in the past but is fundamental to the conservation planning and habitat management that we do for waterfowl during the non-breeding period. Specifically, we're going to be digging into a bit of detail on... Carrying capacity, foraging threshold, maybe a little bioenergetic modeling—really exciting stuff. In in season three of the DU podcast, I believe it was episode seventeen. It was released in September of 2020, if my sleuthing here is correct. We discussed duck energy days. Most of our hunters that are out there listening to this and have read DU magazines or have done any kind of research into habitat management for waterfowl will have probably at some point stumbled upon that phrase, Duck Energy Days, and how it's used, and we have an opportunity here to follow up on that conversation and learn a little more about some of the recent science that has been conducted to understand one of the more specific components of bioenergetic modeling, that being something known as a giving up density or a foraging threshold, and we're going to get into all the, the details, the nitty-gritty of that. To help us with this conversation, I'm happy to welcome back to the podcast a previous guest on the on the show, Dr. Heath Hagee waterfowl ecologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service National Wildlife Refuge System in the Southeast region. Heath? Thanks, Mike. It's great to have you
2: back. I appreciate it.
1: You, uh, as, as I mentioned before, you and I have been in the same sphere of waterfowl research- You and I both have have done, through our our past work, have investigated various aspects of bioenergetic models for waterfowl conservation planning. That's a big part of what you do now. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge part of what I did when I was working for the Gulf Coast Joint Venture. But uh, your research in particular dug deeply into one specific Parameter. I mean, you learned a lot more, right? But one specific parameter in our bioenergetic models, and it relates to um, foraging thresholds. You know, the point at which, and you're going to talk about all this, but basically, or giving up density, the point at which birds stop foraging in a given in a given area. But let's start at a pretty high level here. When we do habitat management for wildlife in general, we're trying to we're trying to affect resources that that the animals need. Right, And we can kind of go back to a concept of carrying capacity, you know, as sort of a a foundational component of of understanding what we need to do to support desired populations of any group of, of animals. Where does carrying capacity come into play? What is it? And why is that sort of an important concept to understand?
2: Thanks, Mike. Happy to do so. Um, So we'll just start as simply as we can. Um, Carrying capacity, I would say simply the number of animals that an area can support at any given time. Um, So if we think about um, a a region like the Delta of Arkansas or the Delta region of, of Mississippi, there are only so many mallards that that area, or let's say dabbling ducks, there are only so many dabbling ducks that that area can support because there are space limitations. There's only so many wetlands that are there during the winter winter. Um, there's only so much food in those wetlands. And so, um, the carrying capacity is basically that, that maximum number of animals that, that we can support given the resources. And so if you don't have enough resources, food, space, water, other things, um, then that'll be to the detriment of all of those birds and birds will have to move somewhere else or, um, or they, they might die. For instance, they might be more susceptible to harvest if there's not enough resources. So that's kind of simply the way I like to think about carrying capacity. It's just the number of animals that, um, that we can support in any given place and at, at any given time.
1: Could we also think about it in terms of, let's say, uh, available nest sites if we wanted to think about breeding season, the carrying capacity for breeding uh, group of, of birds or, or waterfowl?
2: Absolutely, and there there have been many studies on uh, on waterfowl. What's the carrying capacity in our in our, our nest sites? It's not just physical space for a bird to put a nest, but then also how many small wetlands are around there. So when all those when all those birds hatch hatch, and we have broods running around the landscape trying to find food in those wetlands, we want to make sure that there are enough little wetlands. And so there's only so many breeding pairs, for instance, that you know that that an acre of prairie in in North Dakota can can support.
1: So that. That is a critical concept for understanding the basis of habitat conservation and habitat management, habitat enhancement, restoration. If we understand this concept and if we have population targets, if we, if we have, well, for waterfowl, as we've talked about on a previous episode, an understanding of the number of waterfowl that we want to support on refuges or in the southeastern U.S. or in the, the, the mississippi River Valley, the next critical step there would be what, uh, identifying the limit, the most limiting resource?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. In the National Wildlife Refuge System, what we try really hard to do is not be the limiting factor. We want to make sure that as best as we can, we want to provide enough resources whatever those are whatever those limiting factors are we want to provide enough resources so that we're not the cause of lowering that carrying capacity if you will Um, uh, so for instance for for wintering waterfowl um, we often use uh, food we often think about food as an important factor we have space and sanctuary and other things but food is an important factor for wintering waterfowl Um, there's uh, very large pop- populations in the fall. You know, we have millions and millions of waterfowl that um, that use the Southeast every year, migrate here um, for three, four, even five months, depending on the species that they're going to, they're going to spend that amount of time here. So that's a lot of mouths to feed. And so we want to make sure that um, on refuges and in, 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 uh, uh, and kind of complementing our, our partners and private lands and and, and our state agencies um, that we provide enough food so that the food is not a limiting factor as much as possible for for waterfowl um, we want to have large populations go back north in the spring so that they can um, uh, they can initiate nests and uh, then we can have a big fall flight again next year
1: Within waterfowl, we'll kind of shift here to be more specific on on waterfowl here as we go forward. But within this idea of carrying capacity, how much of a given resource do we need to support population of a certain size? And we know what that limiting resource is. And there is this idea of a a food limitation hypothesis as it relates to the basis of our bioenergetic modeling for waterfowl during the non-breeding season. Basically saying that for the most part of all the things that we think that that waterfowl go through during the non-breeding season, we believe the one that is most likely... Likely to be constraining, have the potential to be constraining is food. So that kind of takes us to the reason why over for the past 40 or so years, there has been a great deal of research into foraging ecology of, of waterfowl. I and mean, foraging foraging ecology itself, this, the study of how and why and where animals Eat where they feed mm-hmm. um, is, I mean, that's a really rich uh, literature, even well beyond waterfowl. And it's pretty fascinating to, to dig into the details. But this idea that food is potentially limiting during the non breeding season is why we've invested so much in understanding the resources available in different habitat types, how we can maximize resources available in different habitat types, and then we kind of work all that into our conservation planning so we can figure out for a given population objective how much food we need, and if we know how much food is in a different habitat type, we know we can then kind of translate that to what are our habitat objectives for Mm -hmm. a given given type of, of habitat there. So, foraging ecology has been something you, you've you had an interest in, I've had an interest in. Uh, you know, I, I will encourage people to go back and listen to that episode that I ref- referenced earlier from Season 3, Episode 17, because it provides some of the background for what we're going to talk about here um, with regard to bioenergetic models as the basis for conservation planning. But I want to give you, Heath, an opportunity to take your stab at describing that. So, how do we take this understanding of... of carrying capacity, food as a potentially limiting factor, and then to our our bioenergetic modeling.
2: That's a good question. So um, from a high level, it's actually kind of simple, but the the devil is in the details and and each one of those components of that bioenergetics model can take years and years and and many, you know, many graduate students to figure out what those what those individual parameters are. So sort of at a at a high level, like you like you mentioned, we want to make sure that we have enough food for the number of uh let's say waterfowl that that come to our area of interest like the southeast. So we want to make sure that food is not limiting. We acknowledge that there can be many other things that will limit that population. Potentially, a dry summer in the prairie, so breeding habitat. Um, there may be things that they encounter on migration. There are things very much out of our control that 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 we can't do anything about. Um, that may also uh, affect the populations but one thing we have at least some control over is the amount of food that we provide on the on the landscape and how we allow birds to to access that food and so it is a one of probably our our one of our better uh, conservation planning metrics and so what we do is we essentially figure out how much food that uh, or how many birds that we need to feed all right and then based on how many calories so the daily energetic requirements of each one of those birds we can figure that out, then we know how much uh what or the total calories we need to feed. We figure out how many wetlands are on the landscape, what kind of wetlands there are, um, how much food is in each one of those wetlands. Obviously rice has a different amount of calories in it than does uh than does a a deep water lake, for instance. Um and so we figure out that and then we see if there's any any difference in those. So do we have uh do we have enough calories just naturally on the landscape or do we need to provide extra by doing habitat management and and as 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 you may uh, as you may be guessing, guessing, or the the listeners may be guessing, um, because we've lost tons of wetlands in the in the southeast and actually across most of the U.S., um, we we generally find that uh, that we have more mouths to feed than we have natural calories available or calories available in natural wetlands, which is why we we manage on national wildlife refuges, WMAs, uh, even private lands, why they provide extra food, they plant crops, they manage moist soil vegetation intensively to provide a bunch of food, so that so that um, we have enough food or we at least as much food as possible to feed all those ducks if, if they show up in the winter.
1: Yeah, and, and so as you mentioned, it gets pretty complicated whenever we dig into these models because basically what we're trying to do with our modeling is replicate the process by which birds utilize these habitats. The, the decisions that we make, the, the models that we have in place to do the calculations that you talked about, how much habitat do we need to support X number of ducks it depends on our thinking and the way we've constructed those models accurately representing the way ducks make decisions, mm-hmm. right? And so that's where a lot of our science investments have gone to kind of understand and that's where this foraging behavior, foraging ecology comes into play, is if the assumptions we're making about how birds use select habitats, use habitats, the type of foods that they consume in those mm-hmm. habitat types, if we're wrong on any of those assumptions then our calculations of the amount of habitat and where that habitat needs to be to support those populations is going to be off, right? right? So that's some of my research. My PhD research investigated that in the upper Midwest. You did the same for your PhD research at Mississippi State. And, and and the gist of it is that, or at least for one of the research questions that you and I both tried to address, is the the basic assumption that Birds are going to use habitats differentially based on, or I should say, in proportion to the amount of food that's available in them. Right. That's that's one of the basic assumptions, mm-hmm. right? And so then there's this other issue that you looked into in, in depth uh, of what's the point at which birds stop foraging. In a wetland, foraging threshold or giving up density. Which do you prefer?
2: When we're talking about the response of birds, giving up density is the is the right metric. Yeah.
1: Okay. So describe. So tell us what that is. (laughs) We're gonna we're we're trying. You have two scientists on here, and we're trying to keep it non technical. So uh, what, what's a giving up density? <laughs> That's it's right. a Two, challenge. It's probably the greatest challenge that we're going to have here in this podcast.
2: <laughs> Two scientists that have, uh, have taken way more samples in wetlands yeah, than we need to discuss it's, it's exactly. here. Exactly. That's right. Giving up density, real simply, is, is the, the point at which um, foragers abandon an area and move somewhere else. Um, so we'll, we'll keep this in the waterfowl world. Um, so if we think about a bunch of ducks, a bunch of dabbling ducks using a wetland, um, they generally will come in right after that wetland is available in early winter. So right after you flood a wetland, um, there may be you know hundreds, thousands of birds that that come in and use that wetland, um, and they may use it for a week, a few days, a month or so. Generally, though, they're eventually they're going to move on and go somewhere else. And so at that point, when most of those foragers make that decision to stop foraging there and to and to physically move to a different wetland, that's sort of what you can think about as a giving up density. At what point did they? Did they give up? It just wasn't worth it anymore. What's what's interesting is that it's it's that's not a st- Static number because the landscape changes throughout winter. You get rainfall. You get um, you know the impoundments being uh, being drained or filled up. You get more food becoming available, less food becoming available. The weather changes. The number of foragers, number of birds that comes that changes, and so you can actually sort of go through cycles. And I think many many of the if the listeners if they're duck hunters will have seen this probably where you're not sure why all the birds left a week ago, and you're not exactly sure why they all came back today. Um, but food resources, not only in your wetland, but with respect to the changing conditions around them, make a huge difference in the in the choices that those birds are making in, in where to forage. And so how we sort of index that are uh, are those bird responses. So that's, I guess, as, as simply as I can put giving up density, Mike.
1: Yeah, <laughs> thanks. And and as you you did mention, I, I hope we're able to kind of paint a picture of some of these concepts in a way that our listeners can, can relate to them and as you mentioned I think a lot of our listeners are going to be hunters a lot of folks will have access to um, they may manage their own properties and they may I know if we're talking about some of the rice landscapes they're going to and if they're duck hunters they're going to be nervous about early flocks of geese coming in landing in their field and eating all this all the rice seed before the ducks come down right mm-hmm. I've had Dr Tom Mormon was talking about a, um, a rice field that he had access to a few years ago and Early on in the season, geese showed up and he, I think the term he used was goosed. I was goosed. (laughs) they, They ate all my food. So this, that concept there where you have, let's geese in this case, come in, eat all the rice seed and, and then people are disappointed because, oh, there's nothing left for the ducks. I mean, and so the reason they're disappointed there is it's this basic concept of there is a point at which there may still be some food there, but it's not worth the ducks energy to come and try to find that food, right? And so that's kind of how we can relate to it in, in terms of what we see in, in terms of a bird response.
2: Absolutely. So the giving up density, we're sort of thinking about the density of foods at which ducks abandoned. Um, a, a, another thing, and this is again, getting getting a bit technical, um, but you think about these bioenergetics models and what we're really looking for there is a little bit different of a, a foraging threshold. We, we, Some people have called it a critical food density. There are various names for it, but that's a little bit different. That's that sort of absolute absolute minimum density of food at which it is no longer worthwhile for a duck, for instance, to come in there because they're going to spend as much energy foraging for that, looking for those seeds, looking for those grains as they get back out of it. There, so think about the the end of winter. those the Rice has been underwater for a long time. For instance, in Arkansas, if you're in a rice field, so there's been some decomposition. Geese have been in there. They might have buried some of the seeds. So there's still some food there, but it's hard to get at. There's a lot of, there's a lot of friction there for a duck trying to find it. they can't see under the water. The water's all dirty from all the all the geese that have been in there. And so that density is sort of what we think about as a critical food density. And that's what we we like to use in bioenergetics models. That's the that's that break-even point where it's just too much energy for a bird to go find that seed in a in a wetland as it is um, so they just don't get anything for that for that expended energy.
1: And so from an application standpoint within that model, what we do is if we can identify that threshold value, whatever it is, 50 kilograms, Mm -hmm. or if it's 180 kilograms per hectare, that's the number that we basically subtract off from our estimate of total food available in a given uh, habitat type, right? Because we have to assume that once it gets down below that level, it's not going to be energetically profitable to, to access, to acquire, right? And then that would be the application of a foraging threshold within our bioenergetic modeling.
0: You and your dog are a team.
1: Okay, Heath, so I want to try to make this a little less technical. (laughs) Greatest challenge that I face in in being a host on this thing is trying to make things less technical. But I've heard, I, I know you have a great analogy to use here to help explain this concept of foraging threshold or foraging profitability or how you just kind of think about how ducks perceive a certain environment and the profitability of it relative to the amount of food there and the other things that are happening around it. I've heard you describe or use an analogy related to maybe the Golden Corral buffet <laughs> or something like that to help help convey this. So tell us what's going on here.
2: That's a good one or at least I like to I like to go to it because people laugh when I when I go there. Um but but sometimes I describe uh the foraging threshold similar for a for a duck in a in a rice wetland for instance, similar to what probably many listeners have experienced at their favorite buffet with mac and cheese, right? So think about so everyone get this this mental image and think about you've walked into your favorite uh you know large buffet um and oh man a football team just got done eating or the geese uh, the The geese geese, right the geese Uh, that was that was a bunch of little league teams right the geese you know or whatever it is right so a big crowd just left and so you're sort of one you get your plate and you're sort of wandering around and you're trying to figure out which foraging patch is worth it for you which tray that's right that's exactly right so foraging patch is a tray and so you know you 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 see the you see the, the the prime rib or whatever over there and you're like yeah maybe I'll get over there in a in a minute so I've got some information right mm-hmm. so, so the, you have some information just like the ducks have some information but you you know you walk by and you really like mac and cheese you really like the rice but. It's sort of that that crusted mac and cheese that's left around there after the after the football team kind of burnt, stuck got, to the yeah, edges. That's, that, that's, yeah, that's 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 it. So you could pick up the the spoon and sort of scrape at the edges of that burned mac and cheese, but most people are not going to. Most people are going to move right along. They're going to go find a different foraging patch. They're going to go to the prime rib. They're going to go get some rolls, whatever, and they're gonna they're gonna wait for that to be replenished. And so it that's sort of the same thing. All of that mac and cheese wasn't gone. It just wasn't worth me to deal with. I didn't want the leftovers. I didn't want the stuff that had been burned and foraged on for for a long time um, You know, by the football team. And so that's sort of the same decisions that a duck has to make. They have to come along. They have to um, assess how much food is there. So they forage a lot. That doesn't ne- necessarily mean that they're getting resources. They have to stick their head underwater. They have to sample. They have to figure out if how much food is there, what kind of food is there. And then they may move right along um, at some point if there's not sufficient food resources for them to sit there and exploit that foraging patch
1: and as as people we're able to assess the availability of resources just by looking at it mm-hmm. right because you were able to look at the tray and you're mm-hmm. actually able to look over at the prime rib and so you have that, that you're closer to this perfect knowledge of what all my resources are but you make a great point ducks can't do that they can't necessarily see what's down there under the water in the mud they have to sample they have to dabble and they have to and, and they can't necessarily see what's in that other wetland over there uh, so it's a little more challenging for them,
2: right? It is. I need to change my analogy. I hadn't thought about that, but it's a blindfold. Yeah. blindfolded. Yeah. That, that's it. That next next time I use that, it'll be a blindfolded experience.
1: And so that would be a foraging decision situation in which the, the decision is made only based on the, how much food is there, what mm-hmm. we're seeing, what we're assessing in terms of the amount of food that, that is there and what it costs kind of energetically to, uh, to acquire it, how much time and, and mm-hmm. energy it takes to scrape off the mac and cheese and mm-hmm. And there's kind of an opportunity cost there. If you spend too much time trying to scrape off the mac and cheese, you're going to be foregoing those other opportunities. Somebody else might get to it first for the prime rib or a big uh, roll or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, that's only if we have food that is the the basis for that decision. What if we have a group of people over in the over in the corner that's making a lot of noise that are creating uh, a very distracting environment? Is and, and and let's say there's a lot of people moving around and it's just very uncomfortable. Is that going to change our decision, perhaps?
2: hundred percent. So, so you think about this and so we're going back to our buffet. What if it's a crowded buffet and there's, there's a whole lot going on. People are throwing elbows, you know, they, there's a new tray of mac and cheese out there and they're going after it. That may influence your decision. You may really like mac and cheese, but it's just not worth the fight and the five minute wait to get it right now. So I'm going to, I'm going to move along. I might even have some broccoli today. Uh, I might do something healthy. I, I clearly, Mike, I need to do, I need to have some more broccoli. Um, but we may make different decisions based on other things that's going around. So what how does that translate to a duck foraging in the in a natural wetland? Well, there may be maybe hunting. There may be predation pressures that that aren't hunting related, like eagles flying around. There may be a whole lot of other birds that just are physically in the same space as that bird, and that may make them want to spread out because they they've got a mate with them and and they don't want that kind of they don't want that that much pressure. They want to physically spread out like with mallards in the middle of. Winter. So you get all these other things going on that sort of complicates our interpretation of how birds respond to food resources. So food resources are certainly one driver of how birds use wetlands, but they're not the only thing. It's a whole bunch of different factors um, that, that uh, just like, again, just like when you go to the buffet, a whole lot of things are affecting, w- you know, which patch you choose for, Jim, the same thing for ducks.
1: And maybe somebody, maybe one of your old nemesis walked in the door and, you know, he's been looking for you you and going to rough you up, you're probably going to get out of there, right? That would be sort of the analogy on the type of disturbance or risk that hunters are posing to to waterfowl. And we've talked about this on previous episodes of how it's explaining why ducks are where they are. And, and even at like local scales, regional scales- it's complicated. It's never single factor. It's disturbance, it's pressure. That's kind of what we're talking about here with your nemesis walking in, you see him, oh, I'm going to get out of here, you know, Uh, or the disturbance, the noise. Uh, It's also the amount of food that you're seeing there. And and these things kind of interact. It's also weather. I mean, if it's it's super hot in that Golden Corral, their air conditioner broke, you're not going to want to really stick around to endure the sweaty, uncomfortable environment. And then let's add to that, what else is across the parking lot? Let's there's another restaurant over there and you can see in it and there's not a lot of people there, but you're able to see that they've got a lot of food out Mm -hmm. there. That's going to influence your decision also,
2: right? hundred percent. What other options you have on the landscape? So what other wetlands a, a duck has within a few miles, easy for them to fly around. They've got a general sense of probably what's in that landscape around them for a couple of miles. So it's, it's, you know, and those things are changing over time. So that's super important to inform the, the, uh, the decisions of ducks, we sort of call those opportunity costs. So again, again, not to get too technical, but those opportunity costs are, is there an actual cost to me not going somewhere else? So if I choose to stay here, I don't have to fly over there to that other wetland, but ice cream machine might be working across the road. Or the right peach over cobbler. There. Or peach, they have peach cobbler over there. So there's a cost to me not getting up and flying over there. And so birds have to grapple with those decisions. And and what we've tried to do, and you know, I think both of our stuff Studies and, and some other folks tried to do is, um, you know, not just look at the bird response, but measured the food over time to see how those two things lined up and sometimes how they didn't. You know, it's 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 interesting that all sorts of different things affect uh, bird movement and bird behavior. Food is one of them. Um, but so sometimes you don't get the response that you you expected um, when you measure that food over time.
1: So you're trying to provide a transition so we can start start talking about your your research and some of the other aspects of this and trying to take us away from a discussion of peach cobbler and <laughs> ice cream and piping hot coffee that would kind of moderate the effect of, uh, you know, some of these other other things, right? So, because all that comes into play, but, right. but let's do transition here to your research where you, it was really interesting PhD research where you tried to really dial in on some of these assumptions uh, related to foraging thresholds uh, and and how birds and different densities of food i should say in different patches and how birds respond to those uh, so give us the high level view of of what your phd research was kind of in the context of what we've talked about here
2: sure I, I looked at a variety of different things uh for my my phd the the one that's most related to this was an an experiment where we manipulated the amount of food that was on the landscape primarily in in late winter um, Um, What people had done before and what some other portions of my work um, were, were just to simply track bird responses and track food responses over winter. So we started, when when the birds showed up in early November, we started sampling the food resources and we sampled all the way through early March, tracked the bird response. So that's that's one great way, um, but you don't have control of how much food you're putting out. Different sites have different kinds of food and all of that influences the decisions of the foragers. And um,
1: that was the that was the type of research that the type of uh, study design you might say that that I had for mm-hmm. my PhD. I measured the amount of food in these different wetlands and then looked at bird response and s- tried to uh, assess whether the the bird response matched the amount of food in those wetlands.
2: Absolutely, and, it, and I did that over I, across most of the Mississippi Alluvial Valley large scale study for a variety of other reasons, and so that was part of it. But then we had some that generated some additional questions when we were sort of scratching our head why weren't the birds responding in that study like we pre- we would have predicted them there too. wasn't
1: a linear re- we didn't have that linear relationship between duck use and amount of food that would theoretically be needed to support that number of ducks
2: right that's correct and and we worked mainly in waterfowl sanctuaries they're areas where where there's low disturbance from humans anyway um there's there's no hunting allowed right there or you know immediately adjacent and so we you know we should have really limited some of those factors that would have changed um that would have varied among among sites and would have you know would have changed the bird response um but we still saw some some really unexpected differences in in how much food in those patterns of food utilization how far um how far down really the birds were able to take the food in some wetlands where there were lots of ducks you know they ate half the food in other ones they ate you know nine tenths of the food what what was driving that and so what we did is we d- designed a little experiment in late winter to um, supplementally put out um um, uh, three different known densities of uh, of food. We used we used Japanese millet, as I recall, and we had uh, sort of a low density, what we thought was approximately the, the the foraging threshold in rice fields at fifty kilograms per hectare, about 50, 50 or sixty pounds per acre of food, and then we had an, a, a moderate value, and then we had a, a treatment with a lot of uh, a lot of food out there. And and what we saw was a, was a bit unexpected. What we saw was that for the first few weeks, when when birds probably could sort of perceived those differences, they did act like we expect them to. There were more birds in that really heavy treatment where there was lots of food than the one with not very much. Although there weren't as big a differences as there should have been. For instance, the birds sort of overutilized the low density treatments and underutilized the high density treatments. And then we were really surprised how quickly the birds removed the amount of food that we put on the landscape. We thought we were putting we were putting all a whole lot of food out there and it was, you know I mean in small treatment areas but we put a whole lot of food on the landscape and you know a hundred birds could show up and in a few days they could basically change their functional response they could eat a whole lot very quickly um, and 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 really what then we saw was that that food level in most of those wetlands sort of dropped to a consistent level for the rest of winter but the bird use continued to change which probably was a reflection of what was going on in the rest of the landscape, more food becoming available, less food becoming available, and so what we saw in our treatment plots was were, were birds sort of coming in and out, foraging at different rates, but it wasn't driven by the food we had there necessarily. It was a combination of what was in those treatment plots and the rest of the landscape.
1: So one of the things, if I if I understand correctly, is that the birds came in in these different treatment units and they they foraged and they they took all the food down to a pretty common level across mm-hmm. those different patches, which started with different levels of of, of, of food. Mm-hmm. And ordinarily, we would say, okay, well, that should be the giving up density, right? That We would think that might be the point at which- uh, The birds that, would leave, yeah. correct. But they
2: didn't. They didn't. Right?
1: So oh. what was going on there? How did you interpret that?
2: Not only did they not- Leave, they didn't stop foraging. As indicated
1: by observations right, of their right, foraging right, behavior. Right,
2: right, right. We 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 sat in blinds, we spent we spent hundreds of hours, probably thousands of hours going across all these treatment sites and, and sitting in blinds, looking at birds through binoculars and 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 figuring out what their activity levels were. Were they foraging, were they swimming around, not foraging, were they engaged in social activities, a variety of different of different things that we looked at. And what we found was that the actual percentage of the birds that or the proportion of the birds birds that foraged stayed relatively consistent across time periods. So no matter how much food we had out there, and for the most part, no matter what treatment those birds were in, low food, high food, about half of them were foraging at any given time um, until late winter. Now, in, in late winter in February, we had lower numbers, but the proportion picked up. I think the birds are probably hungry, preparing for spring migration. But what was interesting is that we were not able to demonstrate that giving up density as far as bird responses so in terms of them leaving that's right they yeah. they they wouldn't leave <laughs> and they and even when they were still there they continued to sample in the wetland they continued to forage um, and that was a bit Unexpected for us, what what we what we sort of our interpretation was that of course we were working in bird sanctuaries and so it's a safe place during the day. I Should clarify these are all daily diurnal or daily observations. Um, but those birds were in a safe place; they probably could go elsewhere at night and fulfill their large energy requirements. And so they were just using sort of that safe place during the day, maybe grabbing a few invertebrates, picking up a few seeds here and there. But really, what they they were doing is um, is sort of stay is sort of moving around the landscape with respect to what else was going on outside our treatment plots rather than anything we could control inside those
1: do you think it's also maybe so when they're they're going back to our our analogy or golden Corral analogy mm-hmm. it's a place where there might not have been a lot of they may have been sampling not finding a lot of food but they also were not being disturbed mm-hmm. and they do they did know from their exploits out across the broader landscape that there was disturbance in some of those other areas uh, so is that that that's probably what was what you're saying is might be going on and and then in terms of the foraging behavior that you saw do we know what would be really cool i know you don't have the answer, you i know you didn't do this <laughs> but it'd be really cool to study the individuals that are doing that that repeated foraging and then how would those differ from the ones that may not have been for if there were any mm-hmm. differences in kind of individual foraging behavior but you didn't have that information did you
2: we did not that would have been amazing to have trans a trans a large scale transmitter study going on at the same time or even being able to collect some of these individuals um, and, and see what they're eating. They're sampling a bunch in this wetland. You know, we sat there for an hour and watched them, but we couldn't detect, but when we went back and took food samples, we couldn't detect that they had actually removed a significant amount of seeds. And so And you
1: didn't collect any of the birds to see what they were, were, were eating.
2: Correct. And so were the correct. ones
1: that were foraging and not getting anything. Were they young birds? Were they exactly in poor condition? You don't have any yet.
2: Yeah, we, yeah we, we don't have any, any of that information. So, so sort of, yeah, sort of what we, what, what, what we made out of that is that, you know, we sort of have to be cautious trying to predict um, food densities using only bird numbers because it's, especially in sanctuaries, it's just much more complicated than that. There are many other factors on the landscape that drive distribution, abundance, and foraging rates. And the things going on around your wetland, especially at, you know, that larger landscape scale, hugely important in determining, you know, how many. Uh, how many birds you have and what they're, what they're doing and when they get there, you know? So that means that sometimes, you know, we can, as, as, as duck hunters, we can scratch our, scratch our heads. You know, I have set the table. I have the perfect conditions, but it may be that everyone around you has also set the table. And so, you know, there's not a lot of marginal difference between those, 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 uh, those different food patches. And it's not really driving them to yours or driving them away from yours. And so it's just much more complicated to try to predict bird Abundance and behavior uh, with food than what than what we initially thought,
1: and we talked earlier about the role of, of disturbance and noisy environments in affecting decisions relative to foraging or anything else. And in theory, you could have. Incorporated some disturbance into your study. Now, I think your sites were, I don't know if the spatial arrangement of the sites would have been able, would have allowed you to kind of isolate that disturbance. But you could have, I mean, that's sort of the natural extension of our Mm -hmm. conversation relative to your observation that birds are still there, but uh, they're not further depleting the food resource. What are they going to do if all of a sudden there's a big disturbance? Are they going, would they then, would that then activate the quote, giving up density so that they actually do?
2: leave. That's a great point. You know, this was sort of from a bird's perspective, the optimal place to go sit and hang out, right? There's there's not a lot of pressure, some eagles, um some natural predators, um but but it's generally a safe place for these birds. If we had replicated this in a an area that we could have done experimental disturbance or that was hunted or something, um then I suspect we would have we would have seen something very very different. And and there have been studies that have followed up right so so science is a is, is a bunch of stair steps, right? And so there are folks that have Followed up on my research, uh, actually Adam Baney in Illinois, and they looked during spring migration. They looked at some different um, uh, different distances to to trees and to cattail lines, sort of uh, surrogates for predation risk. How far food foraging patches were away from from predation risk, and, and they were able to demonstrate some differences and how those factors and really quantify with bird response how those factors laid in to to that food to that food use.
1: So the observation that you had birds that were staying in the wetland and continuing to forage, although not really getting no indication they were getting any food from that led you and let's see your your research partner there was a gentleman by the name of Kaminsky is yeah, that I right think I think, Kaminsky, think a right. Rick Kaminsky that's <laughs> right Kaminsky the name is familiar oh yeah that's right I know Rick I actually <laughs> talked to him yesterday so yes so it led led you to uh, to sort of coin a, a term foraging availability threshold is mm-hmm. that right mm-hmm. and
2: and so that's different from a giving up density it is right so so giving up density that's that's something. That, that actually can tell us a little bit about Predation risk and sort of these other factors in the landscape maybe more so than tells us about the the energetic profitability. So it gives us a relative measure of there of that, but not an absolute measure. And so when we were talking about we were talking about a, a threshold, a critical food density, or that 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 sort of critical uh, threshold or the buffet example, you know, we're talking about you know, there's not enough energy. It's not worth my time to to you know to scrape the bottom of the bowl. And so um, through a, a, a sort of, sort of this experiment and some and some others. Um, that's really what we've tried to find for. Um, inter, um, for energetic carrying capacity models, right? So the, for the bio-genic, bioenergetics models, um, because because the bird response, especially in sanctuaries, is um, varies with so many other things. We had to think a little bit differently and not just try to use when birds left an area as an indicator. Okay, there's not enough food there. Sometimes that's probably correct, but other times we've seen that birds leave when there's um, more food there because there was maybe more food on the other maybe, part of the landscape. That's your,
1: maybe a, maybe a riverbank overflow. That's right.
2: That's right. And so then it's like, oh, well, that's too high. That actually had nothing to do with foraging profitability. It had to do with opportunity cost in the landscape. In my study, the birds never left, really. And so, you know, even though it was certainly not profitable for them to keep foraging there and so that that density is too low and so what we, so what we've done in other studies is try to zero in on that that critical food density that that forage availability threshold for use in energetic models and what we found is that um, is that that's probably different for different species it, it should be um, so it, you know it, it, it's for moist soil wetlands some of the some of the research now indicates it's probably uh, much higher than it is for rice fields. It also, this is interesting. It gets complicated, but you know, it probably is very different for a green-winged teal than for a mallard. As compared to a a a a snow goose, for for instance, and so um, when you're thinking about these quote unquote relatively simple, I think is how I put it earlier, bioenergetics models. As I said, the devil is in the details, and so yeah, we can grab a number real quick and put it in there and move on with our life. But when when this these army of graduate students begin trying to test all these assumptions, what we found is that it's actually much more complicated than what we what we initially thought.
1: Yeah, and so the the listener may be thinking, all right, well you've you have the assumptions in your model, you test them and they don't hold up. So what do you what do you do? Well we adjust the model as best we can, but then we also look forward to a different type of model that might enable us to better capture some of these dynamic activities and the the spatial orientation spatial distribution of habitats on the landscape and ideally if we had some index of disturbance on the landscape and and understood how birds responded to those different things both during the day and at night then Maybe that's the next generation of bioenergetic models. And well, guess what? There Turns are some out. there are some people that are actually working on these spatially explicit, um, you know, landscape-based, um, individual-based models is mm-hmm. what I was trying to struggling to come up with the term there. But these agent-based models, mm-hmm. individual-based models, where they are modeling the behaviors of quote, digital ducks, mm-hmm. you know, based on our understanding. Our, our empirical understanding of how waterfowl behave and, and respond to these different things.
2: And so I don't know
1: if you're involved in any of that uh, yet, but
2: I know you're aware of it. I'm aware of it. Um, I've, uh, I've worked with a, a couple of folks and we've, we've built a very simple uh, individual based model for SCOP actually in the, in the Midwest. And it's, it's, as you would think, it's super complicated, right? We've transitioned from paper ducks, as we like to joke about uh, in our world to, you know, to electronic ducks and it's, and you have to have so many more parameters, right? Think about how uh, how how this simulation might work, where ducks are moving around the landscape, and there's and they move into a cell, and there's pressure, and you have to predict or build in the model how they're going to respond to that, and are they going to forage? Or are they going to move and then forage? So a million different things go on, and it's uh, it, it's it's a bit mind-boggling to think about. But there are some folks that are way smarter than I am, and they're making some um, really nice advances with that. and And I agree with you, Mike. I think that's going to be the next. Iteration of uh, of bioenergetic models, and we're going to learn a lot when uh, when when we can build those things more efficiently when they become available for um, for more species.
1: And some of the work that we spoke with you previously about in terms of uh, how the National Wildlife Refuge System allocates its sanctuary or or, or or manages its sanctuary spatially and how much, and that would be. Uh, that would. that's where that really comes into play because that spatial, those types of new models would accommodate the spatial orientation, spatial configuration, and juxtaposition of all these different types of habitats.
2: 100%. That is super exciting for us because then we transition from having to sort of only think about the food and ignore everything else because analytically that's sort of all we can handle to thinking about all of these different factors in combination. And sure, we're, we're, we're trying to figure out how ducks feed feed and how much food they remove. And so we can put enough habitat on the ground, but also we can think about the same time, how they respond to disturbance, even even in this simulated way. Um, and that's going to tell us uh, much more we need to know for, for sanctuary management on refuges.
1: We're going to start wrapping this up. I have one question related to this, but it's going to be sort of a hard left, maybe, yeah, slight left turn, okay. but I want to ask it before we get out here. But the other thing that I'll say at this point to our listeners, while you're trying to digest all of the all of the terms and all the scientific mumbo jumbo that Heath and I have tried to avoid but invariably were unable to uh, unable to avoid we we did incorporate if there's any any aspect of this conversation that you have questions about or want us to elaborate on hey drop us a line at ducks.org. Heath is is local he's easy to get a hold of and would be happy to i think he'd be happy, happy to, to. to have to come back and and revisit any of these topics or tangential or whatever in, in more detail. So the related question that I wanted to end on with here, and it's something that I had written down and I want to make sure I ask, what do we know about how waterfowl forage on individuals' seeds? We didn't, and different types of seeds. We didn't even get into that mm-hmm. aspect of, of your research and the uh, some of the other work that you conducted, documenting all the different types of moist soil seeds in these or natural seeds in these uh, in these moist soil wetlands. You look at a rice field; most of it's going to be rice seed, you know. And mm-hmm. and and so in a more natural type of wetland, there's a plethora of different seeds and other uh, tubers, rootstocks, and they differ in size, they differ in nutritional content. But what do we know about how waterfowl forage on those different food items? Do they specialize? Do they get in there and let's just say only feed on the macaroni or do they take the broccoli, if you have a big plate of broccoli and macaroni and cheese and, and, uh, Whatever other kind of food item you want to throw in there, and do there. Do they indiscriminately forage off of that?
2: Great series of questions there. And the short answer is we know a lot less than we, maybe thought we knew, uh, when you start to dig into it, um, we've had lots of studies over the last, well, you know, from, from the late 1930s through the late 1980s, we had had lots of studies across the, uh, the U.S. that have looked at food use by ducks. What do they eat? So what, what, are, what's in the birds? And so we have a, actually a really complete picture of the number of different things that they eat and, you know, the relative number that of occurrence, right? So are there a lot of millet seeds? Are there a lot of rice seeds? So on and so forth. What what we really don't have that much of are these nice selection studies where, we, where we've where we measured how much is available in the wetland. We've then collected birds that were feeding in that wetland after we watched them feed there, and we've compared the ratios of what they had, you know, in their... Um, uh, in their digestive tracts with what's in the wetland um, and we're but we we are we are getting more of those studies. Um, the Fish and Wildlife Service has funded a couple of those lately, and and some of our partners have funded those. And so we're starting to get a picture of how much these individual species and even even uh, cohorts within the species, young versus versus older birds, males versus females, forage differently and probably perceive those. You know, one challenge to your analogy there is, you know, I I'm challenged to know if a bird sees a seed, if it sees macaroni and cheese. Or if it sees broccoli, you know, I, I'm not. I don't or know. Can it
1: tell that? Can it? Right. I mean, it has to be able to. For some of these, it has has some, you know, tactile sensory abilities on its on its bill, but. To what degree do they act on that and depend on it,
2: right? Absolutely. So it's challenging for us to know exactly how they how they perceive these. But we are getting better. So there have been some some recent studies that, that are super interesting. Uh, one we completed a few years ago on, on green-winged teal. Sam Climus one of my graduate students, worked on that one. And some perplexing things. I don't remember everything off the top of my head, but I think the, the teal were avoiding millet, um, which we think is one of the best... The best waterfowl foods on the planet, you know, best natural foods on the planet. Um, But they were selecting for—they were eating millet, but they were selecting for much smaller species, red root flat sedge, uh, some a a variety of pretty
1: incredible. How can you?
2: how can they do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so for our listeners that aren't familiar, it's a, it's a tiny sea, not quite microscopic, but extremely small. And for a, for a green winged teal to stick its head underwater, presumably where they can't see, they can, they can, um, they, they, they are foraging tactilely. So they're grabbing bits of dirt and detritus and kind of, kind of, uh, biting down on those, sucking the water, sucking that through their lamellae, through the comb like structures in their bill to try to, to, to try to imagine that they're selecting for different seeds, especially really small ones, um, is sort of mind blowing, but that's, that's what our study found. And, and it looks like we're seeing some similar sorts of things, um, in the, in the Mississippi alluvial Valley. So there's a study that's, that's wrapping up at the university of Arkansas at Monticello and they've collected mallards and, uh, green wing teal and Northern pintail. And we're looking at the same sorts of asking the same sorts of questions. Are they eating, are they all eating the same thing? Um, or are they eating and selecting different different food items and so when we get the results of this that study and a few other ones it's going to help us as as um as managers as habitat managers as sort of consultants to our our refuge managers and and habitat managers to say hey you know we've got a lot of you know your dabbling duck use here is driven by green winged teal we need to think about small-seeded species because that's what that's really what they're selecting for versus if you know you're really managing for mallards well they will go after these but not these other species and so we're we're getting better all the time but as with anything else it's it's super complicated and we're trying to figure out how that affects management and how ultimately we can feed some of this stuff into you know bio bioenergetics models which of course is would be challenging.
1: And are there differences among individual birds? You know, are there some that are going to prefer the millet? Are there some that are going to prefer the the smaller seeds? And so I'll leave you with this. Here is we, this episode will probably be released as we're getting closer to Thanksgiving. So while you all are sitting around your Thanksgiving table, you can look around at all your family members and see who among you are the ones that takes your food and mixes it all together (laughs) and eats it or which is the one that that sequentially eats the little pile of mashed potatoes or turkey or which are the ones that kind of mix it up. They'll take a bite of turkey. They'll take a bite of uh, sweet potato or uh, whatever else. Uh, so, what, what are the different foragers that you have at your table? That's different-
2: right. The the, uh, the the folks who mix the mashed potatoes and the corn. You know, you have them in your family. I do, right? And so you can you can do a little uh, little observation at Thanksgiving. I like that.
1: He, thank you so much. I could come up with a dozen more questions, and we could spend another hour talking about them. It's great to have you here with us. Thanks for spending your time sharing it with us, and and for your expertise on this.
2: Thanks, Mike. Pleasure to be here.
1: A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Heath Hagee with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Wildlife Refuge System, Southeast region. We greatly appreciate his time and and sharing his expertise on this fascinating topic. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the great work that he does, getting the podcast produced and out to you, our listener. And then to you, our listener, we thank you for your time and, and spending it with us here on the podcast. And we thank you for your support of wetlands and waterfowl
0: conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DUPodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team.